like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Lonnie. I'm Lonnie, a grateful, recovering, compulsive overeater. Very happy to be here to be your speaker, by the way. Um, this is a particular, particularly special time of the year for me. I am, this is my 21st abstinent holiday. Thank you. Well, I don't actually celebrate a 21st birthday until February the 28th, but this is my 21st abstinent Christmas season. So it was way back in the year off. No, it was back in the year 1985, December 1985, that um, I recognized that I hit that bottom. I'm a hundred pounder. I came to Overeaters Anonymous at 340 pounds. And the best thing I can say about myself at Overeaters Anonymous is that I'm still at Overeaters Anonymous regularly. Anyone who wants to find me knows exactly where to show up on Thursday night, and I will be holding my spot up against the wall um, at that meeting. But in 1985, when, when I didn't know anything, I didn't know about you, I didn't know about, I had heard of Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know what was happening to me except... Everything had gone to hell in a handbasket. I had always been a very good and valued employee. I give great employee. And I was, I was in difficulty. I was being written up. I was being um, um, reprimanded. I was... Things were not working. I, I boycotted my own department at my own department's Christmas party where, you know, I was a good eating party kind of girl. And just um, everything that I did hurt me. I hurt myself. And I was just in a crazy spot at work. At home, I was, um, I distanced myself a lot from my family, and yet I didn't want to do that. I was eating nonstop. I'm 100% a sugar addict, okay? I, I would bake the cake at 5 o'clock in the morning, consume it, and rebake it, and get to work on time before I had to get to work on time when I had to. I did this many, many times. There, there's not enough sugar today for me. And when I became abstinent, which was February the 28th, 1986, so I had just come to Overeaters Anonymous in January, a friend, and I just found out that she died. This just a few days ago I found out. I'm not sure when she died. I'll have to find out. But she, I guess, was my Eskimo. I don't really know what that means, but I've heard people use that term in relationship to that person that, I guess, you know, takes you by the nose and kind of leads you right into the place you need to be. She brought me to, she sent me a piece of literature out of her newcomer packet. And we, were, we worked at the same job but not in the same department anymore. But I get this interdepartmental thing and I open it up and there's something orange. It always catches my attention. She sent me something out of her newcomer packet about Overeaters Anonymous. And I called her and I said, it was a Tuesday night meeting that she had gone to Tuesday night and got in a newcomer packet. And I said, I'll go with you next Tuesday. This is in January of 1986. And she said, I hope so. And I did. I did. I walked into that meeting. Uh, my pictures are going around and I'm not, there's not even a, there's not a picture that really catches the whole thing. But here I am in all my, at the time, 5'6". I'm now 5'5". Five, five. I found out I've shrunk an inch. I just found this out a couple of months ago, so I'm so disappointed in that. Because if I was about three or four inches taller, I'd be in gold weight, you know. But, 
walked into that meeting, you know, like hair fringed and out to here, homemade polyester pants, properly rubbed together in the thighs like only a good hundred pounder can manage to do, men's shoes, socks, and I, and I had this thing I was very proud of. It was a bright red, God forbid you should miss me coming, but it was a bright red, really, really long sweatshirt that you couldn't find in 1986. Today you probably could, but you couldn't find it then, and I, because I am also a seamstress, and I cut it down and, and faced it under so it looked like a nice bright red, way down to my knees, kind of jacket, with um, and my blouses at the time were mumu tops, I wore lots of mumus, I give great mumu people, and so I had mumu tops made out of various fabrics, I even interviewed at one time wearing a mumu in some very professional looking fabric, I didn't get the job by the way, and I swore it was the dress, but anyway, um, and I walked into that first meeting, well, first I made my way to Westchester, which is not that far from where I live, and went to the local chicken delicious, whatever it was, because I had to get something to eat. Everything, as far as I'm concerned, if they sell fried chicken and biscuits, its name is chicken delicious. It's a generic term for me. And I loaded myself up, and my clothes were properly stained right across the front with, you know, various other meals that, that always would miss. And today I'm phobic about stained clothes. If my clothing is stained, Pretty much it has to go. The stain either gets removed or the clothing has to go because I, 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 I could be identified by that. And I went to that first meeting and it was a step study meeting and we studied at the time the um, AAs 12 and 12. I had not a clue. It was a relatively small meeting, maybe a maximum 10 or 12 people. One of my dearest friends today was at that meeting. She is still in Overeaters Anonymous. I'm still in Overeaters Anonymous, and that's the only thing that kind of matters to me at that point. But that was my first meeting. Not, I didn't know what to expect. Um, nobody wanted to weigh me, thank you, God. And nobody handed me a piece of paper told me what to eat, thank you, God, twice. <coughs> and all I knew was that we were reading from a book. Somebody loaned, well, there were extra books for the meeting. It was very important that you knew that I knew how to read. That was very important to me. So I counted around the room because we read one paragraph, and I'll tell you how busy this meeting was. It's no longer in existence, but we read, we wrote, we shared the candlelight. We also had a speaker before all of that took place. We were busy for an hour and a half, I want you to know. And it was just important to me to let you know that I could read. So I counted ahead to make sure that I studied the paragraph I was going to read so that you knew that about me. So I absorbed nothing. Nothing at all. And I really didn't want to go the following week. See, I really didn't hear very much that, that first meeting other than for the first time in my life. And I was 43 when I came to over either side. You do the math. All right. And um, I introduced myself. I introduced myself as my name is Lonnie and I am a compulsive overeater. And there was something about the first time I ever said those words. And there was something about the acceptance of identifying myself as there. And what went off in my brain was, oh my God, there is a name for what I do. I was the largest person in the room. didn't take me very long to figure that much out. But there was a name that I could put on it. It wasn't, maybe, maybe I'm not as weak-willed. Truth is, I'm damn strong-willed. But maybe I'm not as weak as I thought. Maybe that willpower thing is not really what it is. There's a name for what I am. So I didn't want to come back the next week because I already knew what the name was and I didn't need to go any farther than that. And the truth, 
The only reason that I went back the second week to that meeting, and I was welcomed warmly, by the way, as we welcome our newcomers, but the only thing that took me back was I was just too chicken shit to tell the girl that brought me that I didn't want to go. And I thought, okay, I can go. And the truth is I didn't have anything else to do on Tuesday night. I didn't do a lot of heavy power eating at night. You see, I did not want my family to actually see how I got from the, one, the young woman who was in the pictures that are going around to 340 pounds of, oh my God, what the hell happened to Lonnie? So I went to the second meeting. And something in the second meeting, once again, I let you know that I could read, kept me there. And I was rather guided by my first sponsor, who I didn't want as a sponsor, but you see, she had a sponsor who put an elbow in her ribs and said, it's time for you to sponsor. I now know how this feels because I've had sponsors, and my current one included, who think nothing of sticking an elbow in my ribs. It's like, Lonnie, you can do that. And, and you know, Lonnie, you know, we need somebody, and I get that nudge, and the arm goes up. And I'm like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to drive to Palm Springs every month and participate in Region 2 and so I don't want to do that. And you know that's what I did. And my gift is I'm still here and I'm still abstinent. So I guess, you know, whatever it is that the sponsor and, and as a sponsor, I have no feel a thing about putting my elbow in my sponsor's ribs and letting them know you can do that. And I, you know, and what goes around comes around. But at the time, I've attended maybe three or four meetings at that little lo- the location today that is the location for the Westchester 100 Pounders meeting. And my sponsor, who wasn't yet my sponsor, said, um, Lonnie, there's other meetings. You know, you can, you can go to other meetings. I'm thinking, why? I got stuff to do on these other nights. You know, well, I don't need to be here. On Tuesday night is fine, thank you. And she said, well, you know, there's a 100 Pounders meeting in Westwood in the federal building. Why don't I go with you? We know how this works. <laughs> Why don't I go with you and we'll meet there and whatever, whatever. And I said, okay. And now I'm, now I'm having to branch out of my very tiny little comfort zone. And I go there and it, I was horrified and repelled and fascinated and identified with those loud, rowdy people who introduced themselves as compulsive overeaters and spoke my language and looked like me. No, they didn't look like me, me, but they looked like me. And I'll explain that part to you because I, I truly own terminal uniqueness. I own it in and out of these rooms. My racial background is I'm black, white, Japanese, and Hawaiian, and it's an even quarter split. Any, any takers? See how it works? All my life, it's always worked. Well, when I looked there, I completely forgot that part. Aside from looking at them the way I would study a bug in a jar and watching how rowdy and awful they were, I was fascinated by them because I was one of them. And when I heard them speak, I heard the truth about somebody, a woman, who didn't start out an obese woman who ended up being, at that point, 340 pounds and everything was falling apart. So I stayed. Not because I wanted to be around them, because I just wanted to watch them. You know? Well, anyway. Long story short, I'm definitely one of them. I found my home. I found my language spoken. I told 
child with a, a hundred pounder, I've known the burden of an extra hundred pounds. I've known the burden of almost, well, just about an extra hundred and eighty pounds. And I, I recognize that as my physical weight size bottom, but I know a lot of you who are thin, you're crazier than hell. <laughs> I just want to get that thin and find out if I'm going to be crazier than hell, okay? So, so I don't discount the power of the disease on anybody else predicated on their size. I really don't. And we all know how that, how that works in here. But that kind of started the introduction to the 100-pounders meeting really, I think, started the beginning of my identity and total absorption with Overeaters Anonymous. And that's what it, that's what it took for me. I met people who today are very, they're family to me. They're, they're beyond friends, they're family to me. We are still very close and stay in touch all the time. I fell in with a group of people that gave a lot of service. I did things I never wanted to do. That was a hard meeting to give service. One, it was a very large meeting. Number two, it was in a cafeteria. Often, often, at the federal building, they would, the cafeteria crew, because there was a chain link fence that separated, you know, the kitchen, a chain link fence, the kitchen from the main cafeteria seating area, they would be baking cookies and brownies on a Thursday night for Friday morning. And I remember when I finally smelled it one night and I went, oh my God, they are baking cookies and brownies. And my thought was, if I can abstain through an Overeaters Anonymous meeting where they are baking cookies and brownies, I can abstain through anything, I think. You know, be, be careful what you say around here because it's bound to come true. But that meeting and the people in that meeting really, how can I say this right? I identified I became at one with and them with me and I found my home. I found where they talked my language. I found where people not only, you know, some of us are exceed 300 pounds, 400 pounds. That, that is what we see in programs. Some of us never do it. So some of us can say, oh my God, I feel like I'm 300 pounds. My dear friend will say that, I feel like I'm 300 pounds, Lonnie. And I don't give her any yow butts or anything. However, she feels that way. She's never known that burden. She can still walk through a turnstile. She can sit in an airplane and buckle the seatbelt. Sit in a car and buckle the seatbelt. I remember that first thrill. And she isn't 300 pounds. She just feels like it. There is a difference from someone who knows that burden and can't buckle the seatbelt, can't sit in the car properly, can't go through the turnstile and measures every seat at every booth as to whether I can, you, know, you can actually fit in it or not or are you going to collapse the seat if you try and sit in it. So there is that difference for me having known that kind of burden and I never want that burden because what went with it was even worse. Totally complete denial as to what was really happening as I watched everything sort of be in a downward spiral in that first couple of months of coming to meetings and, and starting to barely find my way. And fortunately, I was guided and directed by someone who just put herself right next to me and just sort of led me, you know, just, just led me right along until on my own I went to meetings and I started, I, I went to marathons, I went to dances. Whatever Old Readers Anonymous did, I did it. 
on for a very long time until I was I felt very solid in my program. So I want to talk about my abstinence because that's always a question. You know, well, what is your abstinence? And what usually people mean when they ask you that, what is your abstinence? They mean, what are you eating? <laughs> if any of you are gaining weight, I don't think anybody's going to come up and ask you what your abstinence is. And if somebody really, really loves you, they might come up and ask you, are you having a hard time? I can, I can just kind of see that you're having a hard time. Can I help you in any way? You know, are you not coming to meetings? I'm going to go to one, make it up. God will forgive this lie. I'm going to go to one. Would you like to come with? And, and maybe we'll have coffee or something. You know, God, if we have to love each other. This is the booth in the back in the corner in the dark, people. Okay, this is it. And so we have to love each other. It is a very strong message for me. I feel it. I try to live it. Not perfectly, because I'm not. And it's not necessarily always about the food. But to those of us who are real compulsive overeaters, if my life is not working right, it will show up on my plate. And if my plate is not working right, it shows up in my life. And I have to say that because for the last two years, I have been rebellious. I've been food rebellious. Now, food rebellious is nothing compared to what food rebellion used to be. I can give you food. No, I have eaten Los Angeles and seven adjacent communities. I said that before. There are communities right now that if I hand them in, they'll probably go, oh my God, Lonnie's on the way. Lock the doors, you know. But still, so my wiggle room has gotten a little bit tighter. But two years ago, tiny bit more than two years ago, uh, I was diagnosed as being reactive hypoglycemic. I've always kind of poo-pooed that, and that's probably one of those catchwords I hear people say in the meetings, and I don't pay too much attention to that, I'm not diabetic, but the truth is, my blood sugar rises very low, and has for quite a while, and my blood pressure is very low, I'm real happy about that part, but my blood sugar rises low, and a couple of years ago, or actually way before that, my sugar will drop badly, and I know what it is, and I recognize it, and I eat a piece of fruit, or I, you know, do something, and bring the sugar back up, well, finally, I take action when it hurts enough. It hurt enough. And my sponsor says, isn't it about time? And I said, yes, I've already made an appointment. So I, I go to the doctor, and immediately they know exactly what the blood test, but they know exactly what it is. And they start, I begin to find out what reactive hypoglycemia is. Well, my food, actually, I don't eat a lot of white flour. I don't eat sugar at all. But that's what I have, regardless. That's what I have. And it is controllable at this point by my food. I'm listening. Okay, I'm making notes. And she says, and I want you to go and talk to so-and-so-and-so-and-so, the nutritionist over here. And I'm like, uh-huh. Okay, wait a minute. I seem to remember coming to Overeaters Anonymous. And one of the things that worked for me is nobody told me what to eat because I'm not going to do what you tell me to do necessarily. And I'm not going to eat what you tell me to eat. That was one of the first lies I told. I'll do whatever they tell me. Lie. Not going to do that. Not going to do what you tell me. But I made my way. I listened. I learned. I watched what what I considered people who were successful in that, getting rid of the excess pounds and trying to work through their issues, and me too. Well, here I am now. It is a little more than 18 years later where I have a, a total brainwash that says, I get the food three times a day. My meals begin and they end. There's no graze eating. There's no little bit of taking, you know, my pleasure at night while I watch something on television. There's no putting scotch in my milk. All of a sudden, a strange person that not only do I not, 
or I don't think I like her at this point, is telling me how I'm supposed to eat and what I'm supposed to eat when I eat it. And no more this three meals a day thing, Lonnie. We want you to eat five small meals a day. Small and meals are not synonymous in my life. <laughs> One. Two. I don't remember asking. Okay. Three. I haven't given anybody permission to march through my plate. I have a food plan of my choice. works very well. And so I can just hear it, it building. So I tried what they said. Just try it. And oh, my sponsor, bless her heart, she said, this does not mean you get any more. This means you reparcel what you have. I am already now at a height of festivity. I don't even want to talk about it. But I try it. And it works. And I kind of go along. And the truth is, for the last couple of years, almost for the last couple of years, I've been in food rebellion. I don't want to do it that way. I don't. And my sponsor said, Lonnie, if the doctor told you that you have to take medicine in order to breathe, and you have to take that medicine two times a day, every single day, for the rest of your life, or you won't breathe, you will, A, do it, and B, remember to do it. <laughs> I cannot, her logic is impeccable, I cannot fault that. So I get my light bread, which I ate my, my oral wheat, whole wheat light bread, and I get one and a half teaspoons. People, I am a powerhouse, hundred pounder consumer, but, and I'm measuring food, one and one half teaspoons, I'm very good at it, I can, I can do it by sight and hit it right on the nose now. And I get my little piece of peanut butter bread, and, the, and okay, so we would think, hey, this is not a bad deal. You know, it's 11 o'clock in the morning, I got the peanut butter bread thing going on. I don't want it. I don't want to eat that. I don't want to have to eat it in the afternoon. I don't want to have to be told that if I have an apple, I have to put a little peanut butter or a piece of cheese on it. That's not the way I want to do it. So I've been in that, in that mode, well, quite a few weeks ago now. Gee, I get these revelations. God takes care of me, people. God does for me what I Lonnie is incapable of running Lonnie's show, or I will run my show, and the pictures are going to go around and show you what that looks like. <laughs> and, and all of a sudden I thought, what, 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 why am I making this such a huge issue? This is a higher level problem, Lonnie. Okay? So I sat down, and I looked at my, my, my food plan, and I looked at, at, there's a small range to my food plan, and I've been like down on the lower end of that range and just you know, making myself insane is what I'm doing. And I decided, back up a little bit. Go to the upper range. Now, let's, let, let's write it all down. Let's take a look at it. And, you know, it just, suddenly this entire ease came over me. And I went, so what have I been fighting all the time? Because I'm a compulsive overeater, and, and I don't want to, I don't want to. And all of a sudden, it's gotten very easy. The, the few pounds that I picked up over that two-year span uh, are coming right off. Funny how that works. And in the meantime, I am, gee, I'm in the middle of writing an inventory. No excuse for that. Written inventories before, not an excuse to go out and eat anything I want, take my pleasure, or, or do anything else that's self-destructive to me or anybody else. It's just and it is. But once again, it is in my face that I'm not wired like other people. No excuses for me, but I'm not wired like other people. I don't necessarily approach things all the time, especially when it comes down to what, what somebody tells me I have to do for my own good. Very early in my life, growing up in my home, in my childhood home, people told me what to do for my own good. They were a sick 
group of people. They were sick, abusive. They were, it was no child who should have had to be there. I was told my entire life that I was an only child. I'm 63, in case you guys missed the math. I was told that I was an only child. Five years ago, I found out that, no, I'm not. My mom had another child. And when I was three, I had, she had a, 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 another little girl and gave her up at birth. And I was told my entire life I was an only child. Voila, she appeared. She spent a lot of years looking for us, and she found me. And I'm thinking... Wow, I have a half-sister. We have the same mother and different fathers. And no one ever told me. So, like, I believe those people from, you know, from what they did. Um, so I don't take it well when somebody starts to tell me something that's for my own good. Because most of the people that started out a sentence, this is really for your own good, they actually meant to do me harm, and that's exactly what they did. So here I am in this situation, and I thought, no, you know what? Here's, here's, here's what's happened, Lonnie. I've taken God completely out of the equation. I am judging it. I am listening to it. I, I, I. It's all about me. Selfishness and self-centeredness are the, the, the things that cause me the most grief in my life. And when I get out of that and remember, remember that I have a God that has actually, when I thought, I I lived footprints in the sand, if you guys are familiar with that, when I thought I was completely abandoned and, and absolutely gave up, and this is, as a child, I really wasn't. I survived personality intact. Okay, battered and bruised a bit, but I survived, and it is now up to me. Not to be that kicking and screaming and, you know, kid who didn't understand what was going on all the time. But it's up to me to say, you know what, there is help. I can ask the power that has saved me, that allows me to be here, to have the abstinence to try and share with you. I can reach out and say, you know what, I'm having a hard time. Lori, can I give you a call? Because I heard you share about something and I, I really need to talk to somebody about it, you know. Oh, Ray, can I talk to you for a few minutes? Because I'm having a hard time with something, and I do this often. Because I can't do this alone. But alone, I'm into this, mm, these people have told me what I have to do with my apple, and my, mm, I'm not happy with this. This is not. Well, all of these little components start to come together again. And I get into the third step prayer, which has become my mantra of late. You know, relieve me from the bondage of self. Lonnie, what do you think that means? Maybe get the hell out of the way and let God take this over. And I swear to you, the whole food thing has moved out. Since Thanksgiving, I think I've lost 10 pounds. The average American, I've been hearing this. The average American gains 10 pounds over the... No, I really didn't. I haven't missed any parties, any meals, and I've had a very good time. Thank you very much. It's just that all of the multitude and the sugar that's hit my office and everywhere else that I happen to be, it's not mine. And it hasn't bothered me a bit. It hasn't. I haven't wanted it. I do stop and worship it for 20 seconds. That's my job. And I'm damn good at that, I want you to know. And they all know. Let Lonnie buy it. Thank you. If it's really powerful. We've had some really powerful stuff hit my office. I worship 40 seconds. Because I am good. But it's not mine. And I sit back and I was thinking, hmm, what is it with this? One of the young men, when he heard me say that, he said, you really want it. I said, I really don't. He said, that's a lie. And I said, you don't know me well enough to call me a liar. Mm. A and B, you are crossing wits with me. And this is dangerous territory for you. Because my history says, don't cross wits with me. 
unless you bring a whip. And I know it. He doesn't have one. And that's why I had mercy on him. And also, I didn't want to just shred him to bits right there because I don't want to have to go back and apologize to the half-wit. God taught me that. God taught me that lesson. And I walked out of that room and I said, thank you, God, for saving his life. Because mine was already going to be good. So I think I started out talking about that abstinence thing, and I want to get back to that. Um, what's my time look like, by the way? 15 minutes. Oh, oh, boy, okay. Okay, so I want to talk about the absence of things. People, you know, well, and, and I hear it often, my absence is really clean. My absence is this, my absence is that. And generally I interpret that to say, that's what your food plan is. I have a food plan. I have a plan every single day. I don't follow it as tightly as I could, or sometimes I follow it with a little more generosity than was meant, than was meant. But I have a plan. You know, I don't just randomly wake up every day and say, hmm, let's see what we're going to start out our morning with for breakfast. It could be a turkey. No, it's not going to, that's not going to happen. My abstinence, and, and I'm just speaking for, for Lonnie, this is Lonnie G here, this is not Overeaters Anonymous. My abstinence as, de, as, as defined by the big book, I cannot quote, I can, I can only paraphrase a little bit, is that the longer I stay away from the foods that are alcoholic foods to me. You see, we have to eat. I have to eat every day. My body says I have to eat. And I had a food sponsor. I love him. He lives out in the valley. And he said, then we should enjoy that because we're humans. Our food should be tasty, you know, and nice. And it is. But the longer time I can put between the last time I had an alcoholic food, sugar of any, the, the more space I can put between that, the absolute easier it becomes. Crazy that, huh? The longer that the drunk can go without drinking, the longer the drunk is sober. The longer I can go without without even trying those, and I love it, if you've got to qualify this stuff, people take a good look at your food plan and talk to your sponsor. If you have to qualify, your cookies are fat-free, sugar-free. I get the line I had a fat-free, sugar-free cookie, and I'm thinking, cookie's a cookie. Okay. For me, cookie was a cookie. At five years, I, I tried this. They got fat-free, sugar-free cookies out there. I'm going to try these. So I bought some. And my food sponsor says, have you ever done this? And I said, yes. And he said, how did you control it? I'm interested to know. And I said, I'll explain it to you. I will. I open the package. I take my portion, I, which was four, whatever was in the little row. I take my row. I take the package over to the girl in the cubicle around the corner and ask her to lock it up for me, and I get it back the next morning. <laughs> next morning, I go back. No shame. Next morning, I go back and get my package, take the next row, go back around there and ask her to lock it up for me until four days went by, and I'd eaten the package of cookies. And as I explained this to him, I thought, oh, Lonnie, do you know what an idiot you sound like? <laughs> Sometimes we have to have it bounce back on us and to really see it. And sometimes I'm like that. So, I learned very early not to qualify sugar-free anything. If it's a cake, it's a pie, it's a cookie. If it's a cake, it's a pie, it's a cookie. I abuse it. Like all of the, all of the cakes and pies and cookies that I ate. So for me, to abstain means that the foods that I have identified as alcoholic foods for me which definitely is, is desserts, or are desserts, is, um, is to keep putting more and more space. And the more there's space between, 
the much easier it is for me to navigate the world. My husband will ask me, would you bring me a package of cookies from the store? Very early on in my absence, the answer was no. He never pushed. He never pushed that answer. Today, yeah, right, I'll go, okay, where are they? I'll throw them in the cart, they're not mine, don't worry about it. But the pineapple is mine. (laughs) I come from a land that says one fruit is a watermelon. They asked me in a Weight Watcher meeting one time, what is one fruit instead of watermelon? (laughs) They thought I was joking. I'm not joking, okay. So, so the longer, okay, thank you. The longer I, the longer distance in space that I can put, and 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 soon, at the 20th of February, it will be 21 years between those items. The easier it is for me. Does that mean that I never think about them? You know, every now and then I'm walking somewhere and I do a double take. I never ate that. It was. It's been so many years since I. And somebody said it tastes exactly the same. <laughs> but the effect will be horrible. Nobody even has to qualify what the effect would be for me. I have a belief that is based in, in some fear. I know we work on our fears. We have to do things that we're afraid of doing. We ask for help if somebody can. Well, I, I had to work tent a few years ago. I never worked tent. I learned how to work tent because people at my meeting did, and they told me how it worked, and it worked that way, and I was fine. And I made money, and I paid my bills until I got a good job. Okay? So, God, I got off on a tangent. I forgot. This is really bad. This is why I don't quote the big book. I have to read it all the time because, you know, the brain goes after a while. But I do remember some things I was talking about, the fears. A little fear is a healthy thing. A little fear keeps us safe when, we're, when, when, when we approach our car and it's at night and we look around just to make sure there's, there's not a van parked too close to us or something. A little fear is not a bad thing. A little fear over the food that you know is an alcoholic food, but it was at the office or it was at a friend's house, and maybe that works for you. But for me, even though I have a food plan that if I were to lay it all out, says, Lottie, you could take that two-inch square, two-inch, two-inch square, and it's worth X amount of calories, and my sponsor's calorie counter. My sponsor can tell you the amount of calories in an armadillo if she <laughs> If she was going to eat an armadillo today and I could ask her, what's the caloric count of an armadillo, she would be able to tell me. Okay? But you know that, you know, every, every diet we've ever seen, every food plan we've ever had is that two-inch square. Let me tell you something that is really, really sad, and this one slapped me in the face a few years ago. Do you know a food that is an alcoholic food for me? Rice cakes. Is that weird or what? Rice cakes. I love rice cakes. I get my package of rice cakes. One, it's big. Okay. I get the package of rice cakes, and I might eat my two or four requisite rice cakes, whatever I have decided is my portion at the moment. Okay. So I get my rice cakes, and then you know what I do? I eat the rest of the package. It's a package. It's only rice cakes. I only have to do that, and actually what I do is I consume the entire package in one day. I really have not consumed an entire package of rice I'm being recorded, aren't I? I have not consumed an entire package of rice cakes at one meal. I have many, enough times, consumed an entire package of rice cakes in the course of the day. I can't stand it. I can't stand it. And so the food sponsor that I talked about that I had that helped me so much, one of the things he said, here's an easy way to define your food, Lonnie. And, and you're going to define what might be alcoholic for you and what might not be alcoholic. If you can buy, if you can bring your package home, let's say rice cakes, because I've already talked about it, and you can take your portion, and you can roll it up, put your paper clip on there, set it aside, and not think about the rest. And the catchphrase for me is, 
and not think about the rest. You know, I come home with a big bag of apples. I dump them in a bowl. And, God, they're so pretty. I put an orange on top because, you know, I like orange. And I get my apple. And maybe at dinner time I get another one. Or maybe I wait until the next day at lunchtime. Oh, yeah, there's apples over there. And I go get another one. Never think about it. It's been going on for years. Never think about it. Rice cakes? Can't do it. Can't do it. Bagels? Can't do it. I worked at a bagel company for five months. I had five bagels. My sponsor got called in each time. And averages a bagel a month. I learned something. I learned I can't eat bagels. And they said, Lonnie, you could, you know, this is a bagel company. You can have all that you want. And I went, you don't even know who you're talking to. They can put you in personal financial ruin in no time at all. You know? But what I learned was those are not good for me. So when I say I abstain from, I abstain from indulging at all in the foods that are alcoholic and bad for me. But other foods can make me gain weight because I can eat too much of them. I, I abstain from compulsively overeating. I get my portion. If, if I get the same portion at the same time every day, I'm a happy girl. You know, I, went, I think I went for two or three years. I ate the same breakfast. I heard people complain about that, that at work. I've been eating the same breakfast. I'm thinking, what's wrong with that? That works for me. You know, but I don't say very much about that because that's, that's there. I, and yet, on my job, they treat me like the food police. People actually come up and confess. And I want to tell them, I've absolved you. Don't worry about it. You know? They do. Young guys come up and tell me all about what they like, Why are you telling me this? I am not the food police. But my reputation today is that I'm a very healthy eater because I'm always making the salad and I want the tuna and I want whatever comes along with it. And I think, but you guys, but you don't understand. But you don't understand. This is just my meal. But there's a whole lot of powerful stuff that has to go beyond it. You know, my time at Overeaters Anonymous has been the most joyous time in my life. And I've, and I've lived through and done some of the most painful and hurtful things ever. I've been terrified to do things. I've had to go make amends. I just life stuff. I no longer live life as, as trying to get over. Meaning, I don't shop at the office. I led a retreat, was it last year or a year before, I don't know, one of those years. Anyway, I led a retreat and we were doing an exercise and I needed, I had post-it notes. I whip out the little box of post-it notes and I crack them open and the whole room starts to watch the post-it notes. And I thought, oh my God, let me explain something. I bought these at Office Max. I did not steal them from the office because I have a history also of a recovering thief. You know, my kids need school supplies. Hey, bring a shopping bag, go right through, get whatever I needed. Not my story. Not my story anymore. Can't live a life trying to get over it anymore. If I offend, and when I offend, I know I offend, because when I offend, I usually intend to offend. I'm very good at that. Two things happened to me today. I shut up a lot more, which means I offend a lot less. I owe way fewer amends, and when I owe an amend, or if I think that I have, have been hurtful in any way, I make my apology or my amends. My apology is an apology. My amends says I will make the apology with the most sincere effort to not do that again. There's that tag after that. And I do that with all the honesty at my command, and I truly attempt to not do that anymore. And you know what? My life goes a lot easier now. Whereas that job that I was on when I first came to Overeaters Anonymous where I was not well behaved and not well respected and, and 
that I work in Overeaters Anonymous. It is because of the exercises that I have to do sometimes, and the writing is the truth that I have to tell. You know, I, my mother really wanted me to, to tell her best friend of 50 years a lie, and I said, I can't do that. Oh, my God, what do you mean? Sorry, I can't do that. The most I'll do for you is I'll, is I'll, I'll deflect and I'll ask her to talk to you about it. Yeah. Grew up having to tell lies for my family. Grew up telling lies to, to protect nasty secrets that didn't need to be protected. Can't do that anymore. So much more comfortable than that. Went to the movies with my husband. Paid for the, for the tickets. I'm standing there because it takes me a while to count people. I'm real good on some stuff and not too swell on the other ones. And I'm counting, got the money, got the tickets, got the money, got the tickets. Money tickets. Too many tickets. Too much money. And I looked and I realized they only charged me one ticket. I got two tickets. My husband is like jubilant. Yeah, yeah. And I just turned around and went back and said, you know what? You didn't charge me for one of these. And I handed them the money. And I think he stopped speaking to me for a week, which is not a bad thing, by the way. I can't live like that anymore. He did actually stop speaking to me for a week. And he just didn't understand. And I thought, no, you don't have to understand. You see, I don't have to explain that to you. But in here, when I go to sleep at night, when I first met you, when I went to sleep at night, I cringed. I would cringe because of the things that I had said with that rapid motor mouth or the things that I had taken or the things that I had done or the things that I had eaten that I was so horribly ashamed of all of those. And I don't live that way at night. I get in bed and I'm like, oh, this is so good. Mm, this is warm and fuzzy. And I think I'll read, read something romantic, fall in love and go to sleep. <laughs> what could be better than that? I wake up every morning it's like, ah, I'm awake. I get to do it all over again. You know, that is worth more than, there's not a food made that wants me to give that away. You know, the great obsession for me when I came to you was, and I used to fantasize this all the time, that I should be able to eat whatever I want to eat and never gain weight. No, even better. I should be able to eat whatever I want to eat, lose weight, and you would all forget that I was fat in the first place. Okay? doesn't work that way. It, it's called steps. You know, when I thought I was abandoned, when I thought I was abandoned, I learned that I wasn't abandoned. The answers were there for me. I just had to put myself out of the way and look around and reach out and get them. I came here. Answers are up there on the wall. You know, I, that, that bagel company I talked about, and I'm going to share this story. I hope I have enough time to tell this story. I leave there one day, and whatever it was, probably because I smell bagels baking all day long, but it, when I'm in driving, I'm coming down the 110 freeway, coming home, and you know that obsession, the obsession that we all identify with the drunks, with the compulsive overeaters, with the spenders, with whatever, with whatever it is that people are doing? It is that insatiable crave. I fear it. I fear it to death. Well, it started to climb. And I could recognize it as different from a taste for it. See, I get a taste for carrot juice. Get out of my way. I've got to have it. I sweep it down. I'm fine. Okay? I get a, that's a taste for it. I do that with broccoli sometimes. I've got to have it. got to have it in this meal right now. Steam it. Eat it. I'm fine. A taste for it. The insatiable crave takes over every corpuscle, the hair follicle that I have. And it says, I need something else. Well, I've been programmed long enough to know that this is, this is frightening territory for an abstaining compulsive, any compulsive overeater to be in. And it got so bad, I actually had the thought that said, maybe I should just eat something and then 
the alarms went off. Oh my God, no, no, no. This is where. And I started to pray hard as I can. Oh my God. This is the stuff of which I am terrified. This is the power of which I, I can't I can't deal with this. You have got to save me from this. I cannot handle this. I'm almost crying. I'm so upset. And it lifted. I mean, it was gone. And I'm driving thinking, wait, let me think about it again because maybe it didn't really leave. <laughs> but it really left. It left me weak. It actually made me sweat. And it left me weak. And I thought, oh my God, it left. Well, fast forward some other time in the future and the same thing happened to me and I prayed as fervently and it didn't leave. And now I'm really scared because I'm thinking maybe I'm supposed to be on the 110 freeway to only make that connection with God to, you know, hook it in right away and I'm willing to get in the car and go do that. And I'd gone to a meeting and even shared it and somewhere inside of me a voice went off that said, Lonnie, Lonnie, I have not abandoned you. I gave you 12 steps and some tools. You have not been abandoned. And I went, okay, okay, I think I'm supposed to do something here. Mm-hmm. I think I, and you know, what I, what I was supposed to do was sit through my own discomfort, to sit through my own anxiety and discomfort, whatever it was about. I do not know and I did not care. I just wanted it to go away. It was so bad the second day it had not gone away. And I'm looking at the clock and I'm thinking, okay, the food hour is after 5 o'clock. I can, I can survive until 5 o'clock. After 5 o'clock becomes the dinner hour. So I don't care what kind of game I have to play, by the way. I'll put a video in the VCR and I won't fast forward it. And I can only consume water or maybe a Diet Coke, at which, which time I was sick of. So I just have to wait. When I thought I couldn't stand it any longer, and I'd shared it at meetings, and I'd talked about it, and I'd done whatever, whatever I could, it left. It left almost as profoundly as the previous time when it instantaneously left. And the lesson for me was very strong. It will leave. I already have the answer. I don't really have to go in search of the answer. I just sometimes have to sit still. So a profound lesson for me was to sit still and let God be God. And that was not easy for me. I am, when I say that I'm wired a little different, I'm still wired a little different from some of you because my friends will come and tell me, oh, Lonnie, I had some encounter at the mall and this lady did this and I wish you'd have been there because you'd have had the answer. And I said, no, no, those are your lessons. You see, you're right, I do have the answer. And, but what I have to do is I have to shut up and let you learn your own lesson and not get into, because for me the snappy answers to stupid questions is the disease. And so I have to not do that. I have spent years praying to not have the answer anymore. And to not, and you know what? I don't. I don't care if anybody has the last word anymore. It's not important to me. My, my own peace and quiet of mind and heart is way more important to me than practicing any phase of the disease. The disease likes turmoil and wants to mix us up. You know, I already live in a headspin, and I've listened to enough of you to know that you guys recognize if I say the word headspin, I don't have to go into a big discussion about what that means. So my job has been just to shut up so that God can do God's work and teach me what quiet and I'm easy to be quiet 
you know that I know how to do something. I'm not trying to let you know that I can I can talk you if you and I get into a verbal confrontation. I don't have to be that person anymore. And and I can just sit back and let somebody else learn their lessons unless they come and ask me for real help and not to go and, you know, drag me off to the mall and cut out somebody who was whatever. Thank you. I cannot tell you how grateful I am, and I hope I've been able anyway to tell you how grateful I am to be an outstanding member of, of Overeaters Anonymous and especially, especially at our holiday time. So I thank you so much for letting me share my program.